0: everyone and welcome to another episode of the ASS Cast. My name is Gunasyev Gatulina and in this podcast I talk to researchers affiliated with the Amsterdam Centre for European Studies about their ongoing projects, academic journey and favourite books. My guest today is Dimitris Boris. Hello Dimitris. Hello. Dimitris is an assistant professor of European External Relations at the Department of Political Science at the University of Amsterdam and a visiting professor at the College of Europe in Natolin. His research focus lies at the intersection of international relations, EU studies, and Middle Eastern studies. In particular, Dimitris has extensively written on issues of state building and the EU's role in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Dimitris, you've received a PhD degree in politics and international studies from the University of Warwick in 2011 by successfully defending your thesis on the EU's role in the Palestinian state building. The choice of the topic could not have been more timely, because back in 2011, Palestinian leaders just applied for full membership in the United Nations, thus giving a new impetus for international recognition of the state of Palestine. Could you please tell us a bit more about your PhD subject, and did your expertise in such a trending topic make it easy for you to secure a job after your graduation?
1: (laughs) Uh, The short response to the last point is no, Uh, but let me go back to the first part of the question. The aim of my PhD was to analyze the EU's role and initiatives in the Palestinian state building. In doing so, I engaged with two different literatures, which are not usually cross-fertilized. On the one hand, the distinctive IR literature on liberal peace, peace building and state building. And on the other hand, the literature on EU external relations, common security and defense policy and conflict resolution. One of the main central elements of these literatures is a kind of emphasis on processes of security sector reform and judiciary sector reform. So my case studies were uh, they use initiatives in these two domains. In Palestine, I did a lot of research into the two CSDP missions, which they deployed in Palestine. UPOL COPS, a police and rule of law mission, which has mainly been active in the West Bank. And UBAM Rafa, a border assistance mission, which was deployed at the Rafa Crossing Point between Gaza and Egypt following the conclusion of the agreement on movement and access between the Palestinian Authority and Israel. I also looked at the EU's initiatives in judicial sector reform and more specifically a program called Seyada. Indeed, as you rightly pointed out, when when I started my PhD back in 2008, no one really spoke about state building in Palestine. Let's let's say it was not part of the international community's vocabulary back then. Now, what happened in 2009 was uh, the then-Palestinian Prime Minister Salam Fayyad came up with a program called Palestine, Ending the Occupation, Establishing the State. This plan moved along two parallel tracks. Uh, the first was the effort of the West Bank government to create positive facts on the ground and also in theory to improve the everyday life of Palestinians living in the West Bank. And the second track was a complementary effort at the international community level to build support for the recognition of a Palestinian state, at the end of those two years, which, which was in 2011. Now, needless to say that this recognition never came, at least not, not in full as expressed by United Nations Security Council. So this is when state-building kind of became a trending term, if, if you want to call it like that. Now, the fact that I had gained expertise on this topic helped me secure a book contract with Outlets, but it definitely didn't make it easy for me to get a job after my PhD. I'm afraid that, similarly to other fresh PhD graduates, I had to send hundreds of applications before before landing my first job as well.
0: Yeah, Many of us have been following the most recent escalation of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which I think this time has undoubtedly prompted really international concern. But, um, as far as my impression was, the public debate seems to be barely dominated by politicians this time. Instead, I see many leading public figures and celebrities speaking up, causing, in turn, a wave of very mixed reactions on social media. And how do you see your role as a researcher and educator in covering this conflict?
1: This, This is actually a difficult question, and it reminds me of a job interview question, to be honest with you. It is the kind of question I received a lot of times when applying for different jobs, Uh, but it was mainly because the hiring committees wanted to make sure that, you know, I do not come across as too pro israel or too pro-Palestine. One of the pitfalls of dealing with, as you put it, a trending topic. Anyway, to go back to your point, I would also say, for me, following this this conflict for quite a while now, almost over a decade actually, for me it's always the kind of same thing. Uh, the more it changes, the more it remains uh, the same. I would say that one of the main differences in this most recent escalation, uh, in addition to you know leading public figures and celebrities you mentioned. One of the main differences has been the amplification of Palestinian voices. Uh, You nowadays have a younger generation of Palestinians who have been really active on social media, exposing the realities of the occupation and providing their own analysis of the events unfolding. This is what has been missing the previous times when, when there was an escalation. Social media has really helped expose all these realities of settler colonialism and everyday occupation. No one can anymore pretend that they do not know what is happening on the ground. No one can anymore turn a blind eye. This kind of brings me to the second part of your question, how I see my role as a researcher and as an educator in discussing this conflict. It's always difficult to discuss this topic, because it is one which a lot of people, colleagues, students do not want to touch or they have already very strong opinions without necessarily having strong knowledge. It is a topic which always has to do with a broader discussion on the series of research challenges faced when in the field, including issues of security for both researchers and those with whom one has relations within the field, Within the context of these kinds of concerns for personal security and safety, all these temporal and spatial distinctions between here and there fall away. And what is called the field, in essence, becomes a place of existential permanence, of being in solidarity with what someone would call our research subjects. This brings me to one of the famous sayings of Desmond Tutu, And I quote here, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And I guess this is where I come in as a researcher and as an educator, trying to take a stance not by way of indoctrination, but by providing facts, real facts, not alternative ones. Going back to my ancestors, Socrates very famously said, I cannot teach anybody anything, I can only make them think. So as an educator, I try to engage my students in questions and answers in order to stimulate discussion. I try to inspire them rather than teach them, and I try to encourage them to question conventional wisdom. I share my personal experiences from the field with them and I let them formulate their own opinions and arguments. As a researcher and intellectual, I'm trying to contribute to current debates, expose different power asymmetries, criticize prevalent positions, and also adopt a principal position and speak out.
0: Yeah, So you were saying indeed that there are different ways to talk about this conflict, and one is indeed to indoctrinate or teach, and the other one is to provide facts. But even the way you provide facts can be very different, and I would like to go a little bit more into the research versus activism dilemma that many of us have to face. Can and should a researcher, in your opinion, be an activist? And under the term activist here, I mean a person who supports strong action, for instance, public protests, to bring about political and social change. Oof,
1: this is this is a really difficult question. And I mean, I guess it also depends on how someone defines being a researcher or how you define being an activist, what does it mean to you or to anyone to be an activist? My starting point here is Eduard Said. Said famously wrote. Don't remember the quote. It's it's a quite long quote, but he talked about those habits of mind in the intellectual, which you know induce avoidance, characteristic of turning away from a difficult and principled position, which you know that it is the right one, but which you decide not to take because you do not want to appear too political or because you don't want to seem too controversial. You know, you want to keep a reputation for being balanced and objective. So what Said said is that if if there is anything which can denature, neutralize and finally kill a passionate intellectual life is the internalization of these kind of habits. Now, this is how Said has inspired me to think about my role as an intellectual, while someone else might translate this quote or this approach and think that this is activism and it's not an intellectual. I'm not sure if if you see what, what I'm trying to say. An activist is not just someone who goes to public protests or initiates or signs petitions. Activism can be any kind of action or decision we take on our everyday lives in order to support a cause or in order to address the realities of of an injustice. Now, taking this notion of activism into modern academia is, is a different topic. Here, the neoliberal university undermines solidarity, which is a basic ethical principle of academic integrity, Uh, and the way that the neoliberal university undermines these solidarities through the constructions of the atomized expert in, in inverted commas. A lot of times I had colleagues telling me, you know, oh, be careful on what you say in the class, but also your opinions. You don't want to come across as an activist. And, you know, here comes another dilemma. How do you manage to balance this need to be seen as an expert with a huge load of injustice which you have witnessed in the field without being characterized as one-sided by your students or by your employer or without being perceived as, as an activist? And why does someone need to choose between being an academic and being an activist? You know, after all, as Foucault has also argued Uh, the work of an intellectual is to re-examine evidence and assumptions, to shake up habitual ways of working and thinking, to dissipate conventional familiarities and to re-evaluate rules and institutions and to participate in the formation of a political will. But for, for the neoliberal university, this is not intellectualism, it is activism. The neoliberal frame of of our academy often downplays and even delegitimizes the importance of activism in our own work. Although, you know, truth to be said, they are happy when we do dissemination or valorization and thus proving that our research is relevant at societal level, but they just don't want us to overdo it. And of course, all all this also depends on the topic of of our research. Uh, My own understanding of, of academia is very closely linked to Foucault's views, and it has to do with an ethical commitment to change the very subject we study, especially when we speak truth to the power. Unfortunately, this this understanding of academia is not shared by the university management systems or by some colleagues whose research is deemed as less political or more technical. I've heard several times from colleagues talking about other colleagues using this kind of argument, or he or she is more of an activist than an academic. And these kind of labels or formulation of arguments can create several problems, especially to people who are not on tenured positions and who work under precarious work conditions and contracts. After all, the neoliberal university and the job selection committees, they do not want people who come across or are believed or perceived to be activists, as these people are not considered by them as real academics, um, who will be able to bring these kind of high impact factor publications, which the universities are expecting uh, nowadays. And most probably, you know, such people will also create problems to this invisible hand of the university administration and the kind of clean image of social media, which the neoliberal university nowadays values more than anything else.
0: Yeah, what we know for sure is that indeed academics should problematize and avoid dichotomies, which I think you already did in your answer. But let's move to other areas of your expertise, because the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, although it continues to be an important area of your research, is not the only one. Um, You have extensively written on broader issues related to the EU's relations with its neighbors. So what are you working on currently?
1: That's refreshing. And thank you for stop grilling me (laughs) with with difficult questions. Uh, No, I'm just I'm just uh, teasing you. Sure. Yes. um, In the last couple of years, mainly because of Palestine, I started to become more interested in aspects of state recognition in international politics. And this led me to start research on unrecognized states and delve into kind of different literatures on sovereignty, diplomatic practices, international law, as well as sociology and political geography. Together with my colleague George Kiris from the University of Birmingham, we published an article on Europeanization, sovereignty and contested states, where we analyzed the EU's role in Northern and Cyprus and Palestine. The aim of this article was to investigate the engagement and impact of the EU on contested states. We found that characteristics of contested statehood mediate EU uh, and engagement and impact. The lack of international recognition limits EU's engagement, but encourages development promotion, uh, international integration, and assistance of local civil society. On the other hand, lack of territorial control limits engagement, but ineffective government also provides opportunities for state building. Another cooperation was with my colleague Irene Fernandez Molina from the University of Exeter, with whom we researched contested states, hybrid diplomatic practices, and the everyday quest for recognition. This article was published in International Political Sociology, and it examined diplomatic practices of contested states with the aim to challenge this kind of structural, legal, institutional accounts of these actors' international engagement, which we believe were or are unsatisfactory in explaining change and acknowledging their agency as well. Uh, for the purposes of this article, we examined the everyday interactions between the representatives of Palestine and Western Sahara, and they use institutions in Brussels. Finally, with Dimitris Papadimitriou from the University of Manchester, we recently edited a special issue in geopolitics on the issue of the EU and contested states in its near abroad, Europeanization, actorness and state building. Our central aim was to engage with three kinds of sets of distinct literatures. On the one hand, DIR literature on contested states and state building, Secondly, the different conceptualizations of EU actorness in international affairs. And thirdly, the literature on the external dimension of Europeanization and the use of conditionality as, as a tool of projecting EU power to power countries. Now, in this special issue, uh, which I would like to encourage people to read, we also wrote an article with, with my colleague Beste Ischlegen, which examines the EU police mission in Palestine, EUPOL COPS, to which I referred earlier, with a focus on its effects on the everyday police work on the ground. And the main argument we made with, with BESTA is that the mission illustrates the ways in which its training and advisory activities work foster logics and practices that feed into and reproduce the borders that have over the years been imposed, primarily through Israeli security practices. At the moment, I just finished working on a very big project which took more than two years to materialize. It's the Outlets Handbook of EU Middle East Relations, which I co-edited with Daniela Huber and Michelle Pace. The handbook includes 41 chapters and it has evolved more than 60 authors. It is divided into history, theoretical perspectives, multilateralism and geopolitical perspectives, EU relations in the contemporary world, issues of peace, security, and conflict, as well as uh, development, economics, trade, and societal issues. We have recently submitted it to the publisher, and yeah, we hope that it will be in our hands uh, by the end of of this year. It has been a lot of hard work, especially in the middle of, of this pandemic as well, but at the same time, it has been super
0: rewarding. Congratulations on finishing such a indeed enormous project, Dimitris. I have my final question to you, and of course, expectedly about books. What book would you suggest our listeners should add to their must-read list?
1: Oh, you started again with a difficult question. So many books to suggest. It's difficult to decide. I guess one of my all-time classics is Orientalism by Edward Said. It is a book which I keep on coming back to all of the time. Another kind of classic uh, favorite book is Anne Lemour's book on international assistance to the Palestinians after Oslo. Uh, political guilt wasted money for the ones who want to understand how Palestine was turned into, in essence, an international protectorate. I also recently finished reading a super interesting book. Its title is Enforcing Silence, Academic Freedom, Palestine, and the Criticism of Israel, which was edited by uh, David Landy, uh, Ronit Lentin, and Conor McCarthy. I would really encourage people to read this book, and not only students or academics, but also policymakers and even our university administrators. Uh, by reading it, they will start understanding that academic freedom is under siege, and all the procedures all of us dealing with Israel and Palestine face on on an everyday basis. I won't I won't say more. I'll I'll just leave it here. Another more recent favorite book is the one by Noura Erakat, titled Justice for Some, Law and the Question of, of Palestine. I'm sure I'm forgetting many, many more amazing books, which are really worth reading and mentioning. So my apologies, but it's really, really hard to come up with a selection.
0: Thank you, Dimitris, for sharing your insights and thoughts and for being with us today. Thank you
1: for the invitation.
0: Thanks a lot for listening to the cast. I hope you enjoyed our conversations with scholars from the Amsterdam Center for European Studies as we covered a wide range of topics, from unspoken side of migration to contested memories about the European past to challenges that democracy, academic freedom, and the rule of law face today. And do not forget to check out the books suggested by our guests at the end of each episode. If you're keen to stay up to date about ongoing projects at ACES or just wish to follow the important debates in the field, follow ACES' Twitter account. More info about affiliated scholars. Upcoming events and news is available on the website, aces.uva.nl. That's all for the season, and I hope to see you next time.